0: hello and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst my name's ben
1: and i'm sarah
0: thank you for listening to us today how are you doing sarah
1: Good. Uh, Happy holidays and happy post-Christmas food coma.
0: Yes, that's right. (laughs) I hope everyone was able to have a safe but happy Christmas. Yes, we We did
1: the socially distanced, not seeing anyone except ourselves locked up in our house version of Christmas.
0: Yes, we had Zoom calls with friends and family through the day, though... And we spoiled each other rotten with gifts. So that all makes up for everything. Exactly. Yeah. The key to curing any kind of negative feelings is buying things and then owning more things. (laughs) Best as I can tell. That's
1: what capitalism wants you to think.
0: Mm, I'm I'm pretty sure it's true.
1: (laughs) For me, it's wrapping things.
0: Yes. Wrapping things definitely delights you to no
1: end. Yes. So I guess we have kind of a good situation going on. You buy the thing and I wrap the thing. And at the end of the day, we're both like feeling good. That's right. (laughs) What are we watching today?
0: Well, today, Sarah, we are returning to the world of Roger Corman. When we last were here, uh, Corman had just produced The Beast with a Million Eyes uh, with the last of his money from the original three-picture deal with Samuel Arkoff and James Nicholson's American Releasing Corporation. Mm -hmm. That film... It cost $33,000, and it made $300,000 in rentals as a B-movie.
1: Damn. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to that movie and, like, the experience of, like, a theater <laughs> owner buying this to rent or whatever yeah. to show, and then watching this and being like, the fuck?
0: <laughs> hey, they they made money. They
1: made the money. Yeah. So what's next for Roger.
0: Well, Corman uh, renewed his deal with ARC for four more pictures. His next picture was called Apache Woman, a Western which he directed as well as produced. And this was his second film as a director after the previous Western, Five Guns West, which had run over budget. Unlike because
1: it was like in color, right? Yeah. yeah. So
0: unlike that film, Apache Woman was not shot in color. Uh, but Samuel Arkoff believed that to compete with TV Westerns basically either needed to be A pictures with lots of money and big stars and shot in color, or they needed to have, like, a good gimmick. Corman's gimmick was strong female leads. Uh, He made a number of Westerns in this period, starting with Apache Woman, that centered around women protagonists.
1: I mean, like, that's great. That's cool. Sad that it's considered a gimmick, but I suppose (laughs) it sort of still is.
0: Yeah. Apache Woman was written by Lou Russoff, a Canadian-born screenwriter. He was a social worker who got his shot as a writer because Samuel Arkoff was his brother-in-law.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, use those connections, I guess.
0: Meanwhile, Ed Wood's roommate Alex Gordon signed on to produce the film, and he was impressed by the efficiency of Corman's set compared to the mess that was production on the earlier Western he had written, The Lawless Rider. The film cost $80,000, the highest budget of a Corman picture thus far, and it brought in 200000 Okay. Arkoff, meanwhile, felt that ARC would never meet their true money-making potential on the money they were getting from flat B-movie rental rates. Yet, on the other hand, the entire business was structured around churning out quick content cheaply. Yeah. So they couldn't move into making A pictures. So what do you do? The solution that Arkoff and Nicholson decided upon was to produce every one of their films as part of a ready-made double feature that they could sell two theaters as a complete package so that they would always control both halves of the bill and therefore collect the rental rate as well as the percentage of box office receipts that's due to the lead feature.
1: Okay. That kind of makes sense. Like we've seen a little bit of that theory with um, the hammer horror uh, deal of like the British film and then teaming with Lippert for the U S half of the double feature. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, like it's a tried and true method.
0: Yeah, so the deal here was, and the kind of the thing that was a new idea here, because you're right, people had done this before, controlled both halves of a double bill. Um, Hollywood studios couldn't do this anymore um, because block booking had been ruled um, anti-competition, basically, um, in the Paramount Supreme Court decision. Um,
1: I mean, they're not wrong.
0: But <laughs> this decision didn't impact something on a smaller scale as like one double feature at a time. The way block booking worked was it was like, oh, you want Gone with the Wind? You need to take these five other movies with it. Yeah. Um, the thing that was unique about what ARC was doing was not leaving it up to chance what the other movie was. You know, Lippert and Hammer were just sort of pairing two movies together that they had already made. In this case, the new mode of production meant that ARC would always be filming two movies at the same time to release together at the same time, and it was like a planned double bill.
1: I feel like that would open up some creative opportunities. You would certainly imagine so.
0: I don't know if we're going to see that ever. Oh. (laughs) Um, Maybe we will. I really don't know. I just know that at this point... The plan is throw some movies together. Sure. Uh,
1: is one still a higher budget? Not necessarily no. like a budget, but like oh, so they have the exact same budget? Yeah.
0: So there's usually a feeling that one is the lead picture. Um, like one always gets the top of the double bill. Um, moving forward, that's usually going to be the Corman movie, and then there's going to be someone else making the other movie because, of course, Corman couldn't be making both movies simultaneously. Um, But theoretically, the idea is, like, they're two B-movies being played together as a double bill. To this end, production quickly began on the next Roger Corman picture. James Nicholson thought of the title, Day the World Ended, and then handed that to Lou Russoff to write a script from it. Okay. With Corman producing and directing... And Russoff writing, Alex Gordon, was put in charge of casting and managing the production, earning himself a credit as executive producer. So although this is the third film Corman directed, uh, this is the first that we are seeing, uh, Mm -hmm. because it's his first film that he's directing in that sci-fi horror monster movie genre. Filming started on September 8th, 1955, and was finished by September 18th, 1955, 10, Ten days, days. Uh, on a budget of $96,000, Corman's largest budget yet, most of that money went into shooting the movie in widescreen, which was something new for Corman at the time, but was increasingly becoming like...
1: The standard. The
0: standard, yeah. The cast consists of Richard Denning, the husband of Evelyn Anchors, who had played the, quote, Villain scientist, unquote, Dr. Mark Williams in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right. Yeah. So he was the guy who we thought was right yeah. in Creature from the Black Lagoon. And he earned $7,500 making this movie um, out of that 96000 and was promised a percent of profits. Um, so that was what was necessary to get like, oh, a real actor uh, into a movie <laughs> Um, his co-star is Laurie Nelson, who was the female lead in Revenge of the Creature. Okay. Yeah. So we got two Universal people over here. We also have Mike Connors, who was born Cracor Ohanian. Kraykor? And... Yes.
1: That's a very interesting name. I've never heard that before.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, at this point in his career, he was going by Touch Connors, and his most famous working name was Mike Connors under which he would gain fame playing the title role on the TV series Mannix from 1967 to 1975.
1: Do you know why you went by Touch Connors?
0: I have no idea. Okay. Paul Birch, who we just saw as Alan in Beast with a Million Eyes, the dad. He had been a sheriff in Apache Woman in the meantime, but he's back in this movie. And another Corman regular who we see in this movie is Jonathan Hayes, who had played minor roles in Monster from the Ocean Floor, The Fast and the Furious, Five Guns West, and Apache Woman before this, um, but is probably best remembered today for a later Roger Corman role when he played the lead role of Seymour in the original Little Shop of Horrors.
1: Oh, dope!
0: Narration for the film is done by a 44-year-old newscaster who was at the time working for ABC Radio
1: looking to make the jump to movies.
0: (laughs) No, um, just probably looking for some extra cash on the side. (laughs) Later in the year, he would move to NBC radio. And then in 1956, when the network news organizations were covering the national conventions of the U.S. federal political parties that year, um, he ended up covering them for NBC News on television. And his performance doing that led to him being selected later that year to co-anchor the new version of NBC's Nightly News. Uh, So he became a nationwide news anchor. His name was Chet Huntley, and the NBC News was called the Huntley-Brinkley Report uh, as it was co-anchored by David Brinkley.
1: Okay, I was going to ask who the other half was then.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so Chet Huntley became a voice that, all of America would know um, throughout the late 50s and through the 1960s.
1: Cool. And he he comes in here.
0: Yeah, uh, exactly. Corman had learned his lesson from The Beast with a Million Eyes, and from the very start, day the world ended, was to have a monster in it.
1: (laughs) This is good. Learning from your mistakes is good. Mm -hmm.
0: Paul Blaisdell, who made the hand puppet Monster for that movie created a full body monster suit out of foam rubber and performed as the monster himself.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: This was problematic as the monster was meant to be, you know, big and tall and carry the actress in his arms like all monsters do. And, you know, those foam rubber suits are really hard to, like, move around because they're really stiff, so you need a lot of strength to do that. And Paul Blaisdell was, you know, a nerd who made models and puppets in his basement.
1: I, I'm not assuming anything.
0: He couldn't see out of the suit because it was taller than he was. Oh, that's so cute. And <laughs> um, he barely had the strength to do stuff in it. At this point in his career, Corman had his crews working like a fine-tuned machine. But he had no idea how to talk to actors other than to tell them, like, where to stand, where to look, and what to do.
1: Faster and more intense. Uh,
0: apparently they, they didn't even get that, right? It was just oh, like, damn. here's your mark, here's your eyeline, in this scene you walk to your mark, you look to your eyeline, you say your line, and then you walk off this direction. Like, that's as much as he was able to give them.
1: Well, at least he's working with a couple of real actors right now.
0: Yeah. Um, On Apache Woman, the actors had kind of banded together to direct each other. Oh. And Corman allowed that and was fine with, like, whatever interpretations of the characters they went with. Like, an actor would give a performance and then be like, okay, is that what you want? Do you want something else? Like, should I be angry or sad or whatever? And Corman would just say, like, yeah, whatever you think is best because at the time Horman was operating under the assumption that they knew better about acting than he did. So just do whatever seems right to you. Sure. On the day the world ended, some of the actors.
1: Not the day the world ended. Just day the world ended. That's
0: right. Some of the actors sort of floundered under this treatment. You know, some of them didn't have the capacity to just make up their performance and go for it. Lori Nelson, in particular, was used to getting heavy support from directors at Universal. Um, and she sort of felt abandoned by Corman. Sure. Alex Gordon, who had cast the actors for this movie, um, ended up coaching most of their performances. ARC paired Day the World Ended with the movie... The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. Okay. uh, Where James Nicholson also came up with the title first. And then they handed $75,000 to two film editors looking to make their own movie. Who had never made a movie before, ever. Um, And also, you know, 10 Days.
1: Wow. Are we watching that movie? Yeah. Okay, that's next week.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um... (laughs) The two films were released together in select theaters across the country in December 1955. They reached L.A. by January of 1956. By February of 1956, the double feature had made $400,000. Damn. A big profit for ARC. And it would gross $1 million by the end of that year. Wow. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, uh, especially considering that, um, at least according to critical reviews, neither of these movies is what you might call good. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I, I don't know if we're quite there yet in the process, but I do think it's important to remember that this is also the era of the rise in the drive through yeah. And the shift in movies from being something that everyone would go to all the time to now, you know, people sit at home and watch TV and the people who are going to go out to the movies are people who need, you know, a night out together.
1: Teens!
0: That isn't, yeah, going to throw them out because they're not old enough to drink. So we're looking at teens on dates here and the rising force of teens in the economy This is maybe a bit cynical on my part, but... you cynical? (laughs) But because the primary aim of those teens in those dark theaters or in their cars at the drive-thru was to be making out. It didn't super matter what was on the screen.
1: I think that is a bit of a too cynical view, um, because... I would imagine that they would watch the movie and like be laughing at it mm. and like joking around at it. Maybe almost like an early version of Mystery Science Theater.
0: Sure. I mean, there's a reason why that's the premise of that show. Yeah. Specifically with these kinds of movies from this era. Right?
1: Yeah. So, like, sure, some people are just there to make out, but I think that there is a level of entertainment that they are getting that is more than just... Is this going to be a classical piece of art that is up for an Oscar?
0: No, I mean it's definitely not that. I don't. I think <laughs> if it looked like that, they probably wouldn't pick that either. It'd be like, oh, that's boring. I think a key part is looking at a poster and seeing like a dope ass monster threatening a sexy babe, and knowing that you know if the movie's good enough, your gal is gonna like get all scurred and scream and you know kind of recoil in terror from the monster and then you you put your arm around her and you hold her in close cuz you're going to keep her keep her safe and that's that's when you can make out you know that's I... the math there
1: <laughs> I'm getting an inside look to your playbook I see How are we watching this
0: So Day the World Ended is available on DVD from Lionsgate Films as part of the Samuel Z Arkoff collection Um, Oddly enough, on a double feature with a different later Arkoff movie, The She-Creature, Oh, you can also stream it uh, in HD on Tubi.
1: Tubi, coming through again.
0: And in standard def, it's on our playlist on YouTube.
1: Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, check out those options. And if you do want to find the YouTube playlist, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Day the World Ended from 1955, directed by Roger Corman.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Day the World Ended from 1955 directed by Roger Corman. Ben, what did you think of this?
0: You know, it's got its good points. Yeah. It's got its bad points. Yes. It's got its ugly points.
1: Yes. It's got its pointy points because the monster has uh, several horns. Yes. Yeah.
0: True. Let's talk about what happens in the movie which should not take us very long.
1: No. Yeah, given it that it's a B movie and its plot is centered around one main location, it feels like several things happen repeatedly.
0: Yeah, there's like five kinds of scenes that just repeat with varying levels of intensity.
1: Yeah, so I'll sum up. Sure. The film opens with the end. As a joke, because...
0: It's the end of the world.
1: It literally shows the end of the world. Um, So I appreciate the the humor in Mm. this movie.
0: I think it's meant to be more, like, melodramatic.
1: Oh. But,
0: like... (laughs) Yes, it opens with the end.
1: Um, There's been a nuclear disaster.
0: Or war, it doesn't matter. It's never elaborated on.
1: Yeah, and that's one thing I just wanted to, like, point out right away... That even though in the real world, in 1955, we are in the Cold War, but as far as this movie is concerned, no one is named as perpetrating exploding nukes. And it's clear that it's been a global thing. There's lines like, there's no radioactivity out of Washington, Moscow, San Francisco, like anywhere. By
0: 1955 and the development of the H-bomb by both sides in the cold war at this point um it was generally by now recognized and assumed that a nuclear war would be armageddon yeah um and that was the general fear that the it had gone from the idea that like a nuclear war might resemble like a shooting war which was like an early idea to the idea that you have nukes as a deterrent from someone else using nukes which is you know
1: uh, oh, i'm serious. yeah
0: exactly Um, I think this movie coming out when it did, I appreciate the movie basically acknowledging that it doesn't need to talk about any of that stuff. It opens up with a mushroom cloud and everybody in the audience knows what's happened. Yeah. Right. And nobody needs to talk about any of the geopolitical stuff because it's just straight, not relevant to the lives of anyone anymore. If everyone is dead. Yeah. I think now you might like need a bit of context For what the deal is, if you, like, saw this movie randomly out of nowhere and didn't have a good education in, like, 20th century history. But for, like, an audience at the time, it's like, yeah, we don't need any explanations.
1: Yeah. Really, the only thing that is kind of said about it is, like, my god, what has man done kind of thing. Yeah. Not, like, any particular person, like, a Russian or American.
0: Yeah, just real generic sci-fi shit.
1: Uh, so clearly there has been radioactive fallout. Um, there are like radioactive vapors coming out everywhere, um, contaminated food sources, etc. So, you know, your typical post-apocalyptic nuclear disaster. Mm-hmm. Five people stumble upon a secluded house of Jim Madison and his daughter, Louise, uh, who we see is grieving for her boyfriend, Nelson, cause he dead. He was supposed to hunker down with them in this shelter, and he has not arrived. So he is presumed dead.
0: Yeah. Uh, Louise's dad is, is like straight up, I think some of the first stuff he says in this movie is basically like, Louise, you're just going to have to accept it. Your boyfriend's dead. Move on.
1: (laughs) Of these five people who stumble upon this house, we have Tony and Ruby, who arrive as a couple, uh... Tony is, like, a wannabe gangster kind of type. Ruby was a showgirl. She was
0: a stripper. The movie doesn't... One of the things I admired about the movie is it didn't really make bo- any bones about it. Like, it, this movie's getting released in a context outside the production code in, like, drive-thrus and grindhouse theaters. It was refreshing to just have her be like, yeah, I was a striptease artist, as opposed to, like, I was an entertainer or something like that.
1: That's true. We have... Rick, who uh, is, like, stumbling around and uh, he comes across a man on the ground whose name we find out is Radic. Now, Radic has, like, nuclear burns on his face and stuff. He's clearly, like, infected, I guess. He has radiation poisoning.
0: Yeah, he's got, like, the black and white equivalent of, like, Christopher Pike's burns on Star Trek. I did really like the makeup for it because... They made his, like...
1: It really stands out in the film.
0: Yeah, they they made his um, burn marks on his face, like... White. um, White, yeah, with, like, a a backing of black so that they really, like, popped in the Mm -hmm. black and
1: white footage, which was really clever. And then we have Pete, who is an old prospector doing a little bit of a comedic relief role here, and his donkey, Diablo. Now, it's unclear how they came to find this secluded shelter, but the reason that the shelter is in this location, Jim explains, is that there are lead in the hills nearby, there's good wind currents, um, and he has stockpiled food and water. Only for three people, though, himself, his daughter, and Nelson. So with five new people, he's like, not too sure about this.
0: Yeah, Jim's like one of those like hardcore survivalist type dudes. Like he's been prepping for this.
1: Yeah, he's for years. Yeah. Now Rick and Jim do form a bit of a bond over their experience with radioactivity stuff in their work because Rick is a uh, geologist who did like uranium scouting. There's actual words for this. But you get <laughs> the point. He he looked for uranium for for people to go mine it, and Jim. As a sea captain, he was witness to some H bomb tests, and that spooked him enough to be like, I'm gonna become a prepper by the end of the world. Mm -hmm. So, what we have here is a group of survivors stuck in a house for weeks on end. Yeah. Us here in 2020, because we're recording this in 2020, uh, have no experience of, oh, we have to be stuck inside (laughs) for weeks on end? What is this? See, I'm lucky.
0: I was stuck in a house for a year with someone who I really love and admire and respect and have a good time with and always want to be around. Whereas, like, you know, because this is a movie, we have, like, a powder keg of conflicting personalities.
1: Exactly. So as they struggle with survival around rations, personality clashes, and even discussing who marries who to continue the human race... We also have Radic, the infected one, poisoned one, whatever. Um, he is mutating.
0: Like you do. Like
1: you do. He refuses to eat any of the rationed food and instead is craving raw meat, especially if it's contaminated. Through Radic's mutation and odd quirks, for lack of a better word, coming out... The team learns that out over the ridge are mutant monsters. This also was aided by the fact that uh, one day Jim and Rick are out scouting, and a a man with, like, mutated arms and skin but otherwise looking human comes out over the ridge, and he, he dies, but he has enough time to explain, like, I was the weak one in the group of monsters over this ridge, And they're getting stronger.
0: Yeah, the the theory here um, is that, like, different... And this is brought up kind of early, that, like, different people have different tolerances for radiation absorption. Yeah. And so the theory is that, like, people who have a very high tolerance, who can take in the amount of radiation that would normally kill you, and if they don't die, they mutate into essentially creatures whose biology is meant to, like...
1: Handle that kind of radiation.
0: Right. So they, my favorite description of them, because they, they talk about a lot of um, attributes that they have. And my favorite one is that they have skin that looks like rubber, but is as hard as steel. Which is a great line to give if you're going to do a rubber monster suit movie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Raddick's presumably slowly turning into one of these things.
1: Now Louise keeps noticing like a weird sound or seeing some kind of weird being or monster behind, um, trees. And it's as if this monster is, like, talking to her and watching her, not necessarily stalking as, like, a predator. Meanwhile, with that clash of personalities we talked about earlier, Tony, uh, has beaked Ruby, because he's after Louise, Louise wants nothing to do with him, and is instead falling for Rick. Rick is trying to hold it all together with Jim. Yeah. And Pete's out making moonshine. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> summary.
0: Yeah, Jim is an interesting guy because he seems to have some definite trauma from his experiences with the H-bomb test. Yes. Um, which he keeps, like, teasing to Rick he'll explain one day. And that sort of informs his, like... Weird worldview that's, like, 30% prepper and, like, 30%, um, like, science, right? Like, he's always measuring people with the Geiger counter and, like, testing things. And then, like, 30%, like, Protestant, like, American Protestantism.
1: What's the the last 10%?
0: Um, wanting Louise to make babies.
1: Isn't that the Protestantism?
0: It might also be the prepper. <laughs>
1: Anyways, all of that kind of powder kegness comes to a head when Tony, already several times he's tried to take the few guns from Jim and Rick. He's not allowed to have one because he, as soon as he had one, tried to like take control over the situation and over the ration, so he's not trusted. Um, But he steals a knife from the kitchen and takes Louise up to a cliffside to sexually assault her. He doesn't get very far, luckily, because Ruby tailed them. And so Ruby grabs the knife and is like, and tells Louise to head home, and she tries to have it out with Tony. And now now Ruby, like, she has seen that Tony really likes Louise, um, and has been trying to, like, not be jealous with Louise, and is instead angry with Tony, because she's like, you're supposed to be with me, you're telling me all the time that, like, it's just you and me, baby, and then you go off and try to, like, dump me without actually having the guts to say, I no longer want to be with you. But she's clearly deeply in love with him, so with the knife at his throat, she's like, why are we even fighting? We love each other, right? And, um, Tony says the equivalent of, like, fuck you, you're a tramp. Um, why would I want to be with someone cheap like you? So she goes to stab him, and he dodges and finds a way to get that knife stuck in Ruby. And then he tosses her over the cliff. It's brutal. It's a mannequin. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when Tony gets back, he's like, yeah, Ruby went for a walk, and uh, she just needed to clear her head. And she's never mentioned again.
0: No... She's briefly mentioned later when Jim points out that Tony did nothing to help look for Ruby.
1: Mm. Now we finally get to hear a little bit more about Jim's backstory as the sea captain. Apparently, uh, at these H-bomb tests, he was responsible of towing this one ship out of like where they detonated that had all of these animals on it. They were basically testing, you know, how well animals react to the H-bomb. And he got to see that, like, all of them were dead except for, like, three. And these three animals mutated. So this is where they get the basis of their theory of, like, certain animals or beings can absorb more radiation and then they mutate. And they conclude that Radic is clearly at, like, stage one of mutation and stage five is, like, full-blown monster. Now, Radic dies um, because he took... Diablo the Donkey out. He's been craving that raw meat, so he takes Diablo out away from the house and he's about to like kill and eat Diablo when some creature off screen punctures Raddick's neck with like three claws that are sharp as steel and uh, Raddick dies and Diablo is dead too. So, all of that is to say, Raddick dies, Diablo dies. Pete, sad about Diablo the Donkey, decides, fuck this, I had, like, a whole mountain of gold, I'm going back there, you guys can't stop me. Jim does go after Pete to try to stop him, and, um, Pete gets got by poisonous vapor clouds, and Jim gets severely weakened by these same clouds. He's not able to save Pete, and Jim is bedridden for the rest of the movie. Um, now, Louise has consistently been hearing this creature talk to her, uh, it's talking is uh, the sound of theremin playing (laughs) off screen, which is wonderful. Uh, And eventually she gets captured by the creature and is taken, you know, she's fainted in his arms and he's carrying her around. Um, This poor monster. This poor monster. Um, So Rick goes after Louise and the creature. Uh, Louise manages to kind of get away because she's figured out that the creature is afraid of water. So she dives into the nearby lake Uh, which has been cleared as not being radioactive. Rick tries to shoot the creature. It doesn't go well, because its skin is apparently as hard as steel. Uh, He ends up having to dive into the water, and the creature is like, I want to get at you, but I don't like that pure water. Grr. Meanwhile, back at the house, now alone, it's just Jim and Tony, and Tony takes this opportunity to take a gun from Jim And basically, yeah, see, I have the power now. It begins to rain. And this whole time, Jim has been like, yeah, the rain, like, there's a chance that, like, it can worsen all of the radioactivity because of, like, radioactive clouds and whatever. So they decide to test the water. Turns out this rain is, like, pure and clean, Cut back to the creature who was afraid of the pure water and is now getting rained upon with purified water, so he begins to melt like the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh, what a world. Saved by the rain, Rick and Louise get out of the lake and they start to head back home. Tony's like, ah, yeah, now I'll get Rick as he's walking in and then I'll have Louise to myself. And Jim's like, think again, Buster whips out a gun, and shoots Tony in the back. Rick and Louise come back just in time for Jim to say, like, yeah, I heard voices on the radio, there are survivors out there, be safe together. And then he dies from radiation poisoning. So, next scene, Louise and Rick are getting ready to head out into the wild to look for these survivors because all of the creatures would have been killed by this purifying rain, Um, And she looks at the photo of her and her boyfriend Nelson and kind of puts it down. She's clearly over Nelson. And as she heads to go head out with Rick, the movie goes from the photograph of Louise and Nelson, fades to the creature who melted, and then fades back to Louise and Rick heading out into the wide unknown, and the words, THE BEGINNING, come on screen. Mm -hmm. The the end the no, beginning the beginning yeah i said this yeah so that's the movie um
0: the thing with the voices on the radio was kind of cool because um jim's been checking the radio like through the whole movie that's his evidence when these survivors first show up at his house that he can say like hey everyone's dead yeah. it's armageddon because a lot of these people are like Oh, I was just happened to be out in the middle of nowhere when the bombs dropped, so like how do I know what's going on? Um, and he's not picking up radio from anywhere, and he keeps testing it and trying through the whole movie. The thing I liked at the end when he heard the voices is that they aren't American. Um, he picks up Russian voices on the radio
1: oh, that's neat i didn't I couldn't tell what voices they were
0: yeah it was it was someone speaking Russian and then the other the other thing here of course is and and the movie's surprisingly subtle about it for a movie of this type but the reason why sarah went into such detail of like explaining the last few shots of the movie is that the implication is that the monster was the fully 100% mutated form of nelson yes that he that he mutated before he could reach the house
1: yeah um, and that's why he only went after Louise, not Ruby. Louise was the only one who could hear him. Um,
0: he even, in her mind at least, called her by name. Yes. So he knew her name.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this is a very interesting movie. It's the very first film that we're watching for the show of a group of survivors in a post-apocalyptic world um, trying to hunker down in this one location. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there have been other like, movies of a group in a post-apocalyptic world at this point. I presume so, but... Because I I know, like, in literature and stuff that there would have been. Um, but I was surprised by how realistic the discussions were.
0: Right, yeah. There's no, like, beating around the bush. Um, it's weird, but, like, it's not crazy that Jim is basically like, all right, so... Uh, we gotta hunker down and wait till, like, the wind blows all this shit away, but, like, I'm in this particular valley for, like, these reasons, and gives, like, some pretty decently plausible reasons for why there isn't radioactivity here, and then is like, yeah, so, then, once the wind's blown all this shit away, like, we will need to start... Growing food. Right, we need to start plant- planting crops, y'all need to start having babies, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There has been um one movie in this specific genre before this. Um and when I say specific genre, I mean not just post-apocalyptic, not just stories about survivors, but like post-apocalyptic after World War 3 mm. and it's a small number of survivors trapped in like a house in the middle of nowhere genre. Yeah, right? Which Of course is going to, you know, I think it would be remiss of us not to point out that this is going to become, you know, the novel I Am Legend, which becomes the film The Last Man on Earth, which then inspires Night of the Living Dead, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's the ultimate place that we're going here, right? Anyways, that previous movie was from 1951. It's called Five, because that's the number of survivors. And it's, um, in all but one respect very similar to the setup of this movie. There's a limited number of survivors. There's one woman and their personalities clash. And like one of them's the asshole. Um, There's a black guy in that one. And the guy who's the asshole is a racist and who's going to get the girl. And they all kind of die off one at a time. And we are left with like the main guy and main lady to bone and repopulate the earth at the end of the movie. The, difference between that movie which was a columbia pictures real movie an a picture (laughs) at least as close to a as you get from columbia and the difference between that movie and this is mutants like the radiation mutation there's no like radix character here would be very very familiar to anyone who's seen a zombie movie where there's the character who's like been bitten but like
1: hasn't told anyone yeah
0: and is like going around and they're like, hey, are you feeling okay? And they're like, I kind of want brains for breakfast, but. Uh. And they're yeah. like, wow, that's a weird thing for you to say. Oh, well, that's. that's... I'm sure
1: you're fine. Yeah.
0: Um, that's Radic here. So there's nothing like that. There's no monsters. There's no radiation. There's no mutation. And that's the stuff that pulls this into the realm of B sci fi movies, right?
1: Is Five not a horror movie?
0: No. Um, and I don't think this is either.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Basically what this is and what five is, is like a single setting stage play drama. You would get the same story out of like, you know, like Key Largo, like, oh, there's a, (laughs) there's a big storm and like these few characters are all trapped here in a house and let's watch them bounce off each other. Right. Right. In the case of Five and Day of the World Ended, the inciting incident is nuclear war. Um, so, Day of the World Ended comes off as a stage play drama with a sci-fi framework. You know, there's a monster and mutations and radiation, but like Radic, for instance, is never really a threat to the group. He just goes out at night and like eats rabbits whole. To the point where there's nothing left but bones but like he never threatens the group the monster you know threatens louise at the end but it's like it's just at the end of the movie and i joked while we were watching that maybe that's because like the costume's so bad uh <laughs> that they just you know didn't want to have it throughout the film but the effect is as if you were watching like a like a victorian comedy of manners or something about like jonathan hawker and mina and and lucy and who's going to marry who and you know relationships and and like a downton abbey kind of thing and then like the last 10 minutes of the movie that's like an hour and a half long dracula just shows up out of nowhere and grabs mina and then just like walks right into the sunlight outside and dies
1: (laughs) (laughs) that is that's a good addition here uh to point out like they don't defeat the monster. It just happens to rain. Mm -hmm. And Louise has a line that's like, man fucked the world and God fixed it with rain.
0: Yeah. It's, it's
1: very, I paraphrase of course. Yeah.
0: She didn't say that exactly. Um, (laughs) she, the movie is very clear that because like they set up, like the science says the rain should be deadly, right? It's not a case of like, Oh, the rain might be deadly. It's like the rain should be deadly. Um, so it's very clear that it's a deus Six machina ending, that God showed up and was like, all right. And in fact, the the narration from Chet Huntley at the start of the movie is like, oh, but the Lord in his infinite wisdom has a plan kind of thing. And I just think that like... If he had a plan,
1: why did he let Tony go and fuck everyone over?
0: Well... Okay, yes. And also, if you're going to choose the last seven people on Earth, you went with, like, Prepper, okay. His daughter, sure. Heroic manly man, sure, okay. And then Gangster, his, like, you know, stripper girlfriend, and, like, a Prospector character out of, like, an old Western. (laughs) (laughs) What? But, yeah, I... So 5 isn't horror, it's just drama. And I think this is honestly just a drama. I think if you go into this expecting a monster movie...
1: It's a monster movie. No,
0: it is. It is. But if you go into it expecting Creature from the Black Lagoon or some shit, you're going to be really bored.
1: Yes, but I think it's worth mentioning that this is clearly an outlet for Cold War fears Mm -hmm. happening at the time, which horror tends to do, but all art tends to do it does have the tragedy of nelson still loving louise yes. coming to her yes. and that not even being apparent really to louise yeah like at least on a conscious level right there's the fear i think that everyone has with the post-apocalyptic setting of like i survived but what about the others you know am i truly alone here
0: or even, like, the movie has a lot of really fatalistic sentiments. Like, Jim is pretty pissed off that, you know, these, like, five people have shown up to eat his three people's worth of food. So he's like, yeah, after, like, two months, we're all going to die. Yeah. And and then... he doesn't
1: even want to open the door. But it's Louise that is, like, the heart yeah, and it's like you wouldn't have forgiven yourself if you hadn't opened the door. Right, like we had to help these people. That's why Rick saves Raddock.
0: Yes, exactly. You know, Jim Jim goes through like a character arc, right? Where because of Rick and seeing like Rick and Louise fall in love, he get, becomes hopeful for the future, and now he wants everyone to survive so that we can rebuild. Um, other characters have like different reactions. Like at first, you know, Tony and Ruby are like all right, well, we'll hunker down here for a while and then we'll go on to San Francisco like we planned and have to, like, grow to accept that there's no fucking world out there, right? And then once Tony's accepted that, his goal becomes, I want Louise because she's young and new and different. And Ruby just sort of gives up, right? Like, Ruby's like, oh, yeah, I figure we're all going to be dead at the end of two weeks. So, like, whatever, right? Pete,
1: (laughs) Pete just... Pete just is making moonshine. Just and makes
0: moonshine, he, and he's clearly only living
1: for Diablo. Yeah, he
0: clearly has a very loving relationship with his
1: donkey. Donkey.
0: There's a lot of nihilistic sentiment in this movie, um, which is really, I think, unique to see.
1: It was surprising, like even our dashing, manly man hero Rick isn't not fatalistic
0: yeah he he recognizes like the the difficulties of the situation they're in right i think if you can get past the very bad monster and the repetitiveness that comes from needing to fill 80 minutes with just seven people stuck in one house the movie's pretty good
1: yeah i think corman did a pretty good job directing you can definitely tell that Louise's actress is struggling.
0: Yeah, I think where her trouble is coming from is like, so this cast, I think most of them do a pretty good job embodying their roles, but that's because everyone here is just an archetype. Yeah. Right? Like the actor who's playing Pete, if you look at his like filmography, he's basically just played this character in Westerns for like 20 years. Tony's just a hood Ruby's the gangster's girlfriend, Rick's the dashing hero, and I think Lori Nelson as Louise struggles the most because her archetype is the innocent good girl, and of all of those archetypes, that's the one that there's kind of like the least to hang on to in as an actor.
1: Yeah, and like, I think it's tough to try to, because her storyline, at least with Nelson, the monster, <laughs> is kind of like the tragic core at the end. Right. Like, there's tragedy in that, like, oh, fuck, it's just a seven, but, like, the tragedy of the mutants.
0: Yeah. The, the issue is that she's underwritten, because Louise doesn't really, like, come from anywhere, right? She was at the house to start. Yeah. But she doesn't have her own, like philosophy and agency like her dad does she's here following dad's orders right um so she doesn't really have anything to express she's the yeah she's the center of a push-pull between rick and tony and the movie does do something a little ambiguous when jim goes to her the first time and is like hey louise i need you to get knocked up that suggests that she hasn't really gotten over nelson but she understands that her choices are, like, Dashing McHero or Scumbag McGee. And so she'll she'll go with Dashing McHero, you know? Yeah. Um, but she really doesn't have, like, a lot of choices in the matter. And her central storyline that you point out with the monster, the monster doesn't talk. So she has no one to, like, there's nothing to be expressed there, right? Yeah. There's nothing as an actress, for her to do there.
1: Yeah. So it's... She's definitely put into a, a tough situation there. The movie has some pretty good tension and pacing. You know, it's it's not the worst we've seen.
0: No, for sure. So it's
1: it's alright, especially given, like, they're kind of already having to go upstream, you know?
0: Yeah, i th- I think, you know, if something works against this movie, it's that... They very clearly were stuck with, hey, you have seven people in a house. Yeah. Right? Paul Birch, I think, does a really good job playing ridiculous dialogue totally straight again. He's just got like a... Who's he? He's gym. Jim.
1: Oh, yeah. So in Beast with a Million Eyes, he's the one that goes, birds don't think. And here, I think his standout line is, there is no logic anymore.
0: Right. Um, yeah, Paul Birch just has something in his voice that really sells that shit really well. Um, I do think his character here, Jim, is better than Alan in Beast with a Million Eyes, if only because the weirdness of the character in kind of being the one who understands what's going on for little to no reason. And the fact that Jim kind of bounces between, like, optimism and extreme pessimism and has, like these conversations with Rick that are, like, this weird mix of Protestant and, like, nihilist philosophy, that weirdness, at least in Jim, is all explained by the fact that, like, he clearly has trauma from seeing a bunch of fucking animals die and then mutate, right?
1: Yeah, which I think is reasonable to have after (laughs) seeing
0: that. Yeah, for sure. Whereas, like, Alan, it was never really clear, like, why does your personality change from scene to scene? I... I... (sighs) I don't know if I agree about the pacing. I do up to a point. I think the problem is is that there's a very identifiable sense when you're watching the movie that at a certain point the characters have run out of things to say and do. Yeah. And so they just keep doing and saying the same things over and over in different variations. And I mean... It's really frustrating as an audience member. On the other hand, having lived through 2020, it is kind of a realistic depiction of, like, the (laughs) quarantine experience. It's like, your days just are the same shit over and over again.
1: It does make sense that they were able to film everything in ten days, though.
0: (laughs) Yes. You you definitely get that cheap B-movie sense of, like, you know watching the movie exactly how it was shot. Because... You know, there's very few locations. There's, like, the living room, the bedroom, the porch, the lake, the ridge. I think that's it. Yep. And every time we see each one, it's from the exact same camera angle. So you know that, like, the way that every single scene on the ridge was shot was they plunked down the camera. They were like, okay, these two characters go to their scene. All right, cut. All right, now you two characters come in and do it without moving that camera once. Yep. The other thing that lets down this movie past the repetitiveness, and we've talked around it a little bit, but I want to just bring it out in the open, is that the monster suit is fucking terrible.
1: So it has three eyes. I, I, I will, okay.
0: The design is it, cool. Yeah,
1: the design is cool. The execution is poor. Mm-hmm. Um, it has three eyes, kind of a, a monkey mouth, a, like, demony nose. Mm-hmm. Um, like a witch hook nose. Yeah, yeah. Um, three horns.
0: Like unicorn horns, but there's three of them. There's
1: three of them, and they wiggle when you walk. (laughs) Um, it has, like, you know how, like, football players have, like, the big pauldrons? So it has, like, big, bulky shoulders. And then these dinky little, like... (laughs) Like, tiny little arms popping off there that just, like, wiggle as you walk. That have, like, little claws on them. And then, yeah, big bulky arms that lead to these three main claws. And clearly, um, all of the effort was done on the upper body. Uh, This creature skipped leg day, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Because it's just Paul Blaisdell's regular legs. Underneath, so it looks very wonky, yeah, you see the
0: full shot I think the problem here is the proportions, right, like yeah. the construction is bad, like the thing looks fake, and I think the attempt at trying to give it kind of like charred looking skin works against it because it just looks like pieces are going to start falling off at any moment, but I think the biggest problem is proportions. Because I'm actually kind of, now that you've said that, convinced that the core of this might actually be, like, a quarterback's, like, upper body piece.
1: It makes sense to build something on top of a strong foundation like that.
0: And then it's got, like you said, these big oversized arms, right, that Paul Blaisdell's probably put his arms into. And the head on top, you know, is clearly the kind of thing where, like... The actor's head is somewhere in the creature's, like, neck. That kind of idea. And because the head is what it is, like, it's just a stiff head. It doesn't move. It doesn't turn. It doesn't do anything. And, yeah, and then he's just wearing, like, a black, like, unitard or something under it. And that's just what he's got. Like, there's nothing. And so part of it's that the legs are just normal legs. But also the thing that you really feel is that they put this, like, giant big thing on Paul Blaisdell... And because he doesn't have the proportions to fill it out, you know, if you imagine it as just this upper body piece, like as he walks, it's like wobbling around on his shoulders, basically.
1: Yeah, it's um, it, it's not very
0: good. Especially because he can't see too, so his his gait is strange, and he like it's it's not overt but I think he walks into some trees on camera a few times. A
1: few times. They, at least the horns kind of hit something. things. He,
0: they try to kind of cover it as if, like, because he, when he hits a tree, he'll, like, reach out to it with his hands and kind of, like, feel it and kind of, like, look around it as if, like, he's skulking through the trees and hiding behind them. But, like, I think he just hits a few.
1: Yeah. When Rick is shooting at him, mm. he... <laughs> He'll, like, be, quote-unquote, hit by the bullet, and then he'll move his arms as if he's, like, blocking them with his arms. Right,
0: or trying to, like, bat them away or something.
1: And the thing that always bothers me is if you're out hunting, and let's say you're hunting, like, a predator, Mm -hmm. not just a deer. Mm -hmm. When you go and you shoot them, if they aren't immediately killed, they are coming at you. Yeah. And they are coming at you quickly. Yeah. This creature just like is walking towards you. Yeah, yeah. Just like, you know, like
0: all movie monsters up to this point.
1: But it's just, it's a pet peeve of mine. I know. Like, they should I be know. like running or sh- snarling or something. I don't, th-
0: I'm going to make a note to try to identify the first movie monster who moves at a faster pace than Frankenstein. Yeah. Because I feel like somehow Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, like broke monsters (laughs) because everyone, no matter what thinks they have to move with that slow lumbering gait. And, you know, I'm trying to think of monsters in movies who run and it's like,
1: Like, maybe the wolfman, because he's, like, crouched and kind of, like, moving like that. Yeah, he's
0: got a little bit more limberness to him, although he never, like, breaks out in, like, a full run. Yeah, that's the thing. Right? And I'm trying to think, like, who does, and honestly, the first thing coming into my mind is, like... The remake of Dawn of the Dead from 2004 that invented running zombies? And I'm like, no. There has to be a monster who was able to fucking run before 2004. <laughs> but, like, we're going to have to find who it is. Who's yeah. the first monster who didn't skip oh, leg day?
1: What about, uh, uh, is his name Leatherface? The oh, dude with yeah. the chainsaw. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. I like yeah. running at you.
0: Yeah, a lot of the slasher villains, though are, like, still, like, steady, methodical walkers, though, And that's right? kind of
1: what's scary about them. Yeah, Like, I know yeah. that, like, that's a big thing about Jason.
0: Yeah, and and certainly Michael Myers. Yeah. Where, like, because the, the thing that's supposed to be scary is that, like, he's slowly coming for you, and he's, like, a block away, and then you, like, turn the corner, and he's, like, right fucking there somehow. Yeah. But, yeah, anyways, put a pin in that. We'll, we'll make a note. We'll try to figure out who our first running monster is. As for this movie, um... Interesting ideas, decent character drama. I think its biggest flaw is that it's just never able to really go anywhere with any of those ideas.
1: Well, if they go over the ridge bend, they're going to be killed by the radiation. Um, Having discussed it, I think I agree with you that this is not a horror movie, but that, as you've pointed out, it leads to horror movies with, like... I Am Legend, Last Man Standing, and, of course, Night of the Living Dead.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was good to to watch for that reason. But yeah, this is... It's a monster movie because it's got a monster, and it's a sci-fi movie because it's about radiation. Yeah, mutations and shit. But, like, mostly this is a character piece. So this is going to join the other movies on our not applicable part of the list um, with stuff that we've watched that turned out not
1: to be horror. You can find that list on our website, com. There you can find links to the other episodes we may have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you feel that Day the World Ended should be considered a horror movie, send us an appeal through our Ask box. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at com or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. And when you do that, make sure you kind of explain, like, why. Don't just say... It's a horror movie, guys. Come on. Yeah. That's <laughs> I want to hear uh, what you have to say about it. Cause uh, I love hearing, I like talking about movies and I like hearing people talk about movies. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we do this podcast.
0: Yeah. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify and wherever podcasts can be listened to by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on one of those services. That helps algorithms promote the show to new people. If you don't want to rely on algorithms promoting the show, you can do it yourself by talking to <laughs> your friends and letting them know about this cool little podcast. Or if you want to help us in a more direct financial way, you can head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast and sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as
1: a dollar a month. We are currently five weeks away from reaching our 150th week on Patreon, and we're hoping to reach our first goal of $150 a month by that 150th week. We are $30 away, so you, yes you, sitting at home, doing whatever you're doing while listening to this podcast, you can help us reach that $150. And uh, once we reach that goal, we will start doing episodes on horror-adjacent movies. Right. Like, we might watch five. Yeah. Actually, I'd be kind of interested in it. Though I will say, I don't like these movies. (laughs) (laughs) It really stresses me out. Oh, oh no. (laughs) Most apocalyptic stuff. Maybe that's also why zombie movies really stress me out. For sure. Um, So you can imagine how my 2020 has been. (laughs) But I will watch it for you, listeners.
0: For $150 a month. Yes. <laughs> Pay me first. So that's patreon.com slash Scream Scene Uh What
1: are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Next week we're watching the other half of this double feature. Maybe it will turn out to be a horror movie. It's The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. And And listen, and I'm going to say this next week too, but I need to just stop right here and acknowledge a league is a unit of distance. Okay. It's it's like an archaic unit of distance. It's like three and some miles. Okay. okay. And clearly, its use in movie titles was popularized because Disney made 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Right? Yeah. The Jules Verne adaptation. The thing about the title, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, is it doesn't mean they're 20,000 Leagues Deep. It means that they have traveled a total of 20,000 Leagues...
1: Under Under the the sea. sea. Because they're in a submarine.
0: Right. 20,000 leagues, comma, under the sea, as opposed to, say, you know, 50,000 miles, comma, in an airplane. Okay? So, it's not a measurement of depth. So, if you're saying something is from a certain amount of leagues, that's implying depth. Right? So, this monster's from 10,000 leagues. Because it's not from 10,000 leagues away. It's it's the monster from 10,000 leagues. That's like... 30,000 ish miles or so, if like a league is, um,
1: like three ish miles. miles yeah.
0: From the surface of the earth to the earth's core is something like 500 and some miles. So there's no way that. You can't is. be 10,000 leagues deep, not even close.
1: Well, maybe this beast, this monster, what's the title?
0: The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues.
1: Well, maybe this phantom had to travel all the way. From the lake under the Paris Opera House to the sea, Ben. <laughs> and that's the 10,000 lakes. Well, we'll find out next week. <laughs> we'll see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.